Yeah. What yeah. what town exactly? Uh, Florence. Florence. Okay. Which is in the Shoals. Which, if you know your recording history, oh, is Shoals, where right? like Muscle Shoals and everything is. Mm-hmm. So, uh-huh. lots okay. of awesome music has come out of here. <laughs> what is a shoal? Uh, I think it's just the the banks of like the river, because like there's a the Tennessee River runs like right through, in and Florence and Muscle Shoals and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. so they just kind of call this whole area the Shoals. Uh huh. Okay. I think I've always. I've seen it, but I've always been embarrassed. It's like one of those things you see enough that if you that like if you haven't asked what it means, you just are embarrassed to ask. <laughs> yeah, well, like I, thought- I mean, I I totally get that because before I moved here, I honestly did not know the history of like the recording scene here and everything. And then when I started like researching after I got the job, I was like, holy cow! There's been yeah. a ton of insane stuff that came out of this, and the studios are tiny. Mm-hmm. Like Muscle Shoals Sound, if you look at it from like the street, you can't fathom how there's a recording studio even in that building. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a shack. (laughs) I used to think, I mean, I thought Muscle Shoals was somebody's name. Yeah. You know, I was like, that's cool. I want to meet this guy, Muscle Shoals. Um, Well, anyway, well, um, if you can hear me clearly, I am recording here. Can you hear and see me okay? Yeah, we're good. All right, I am rolling here. Uh, let's gavel this to order then. Sound okay? All right. Yep. Oosh, gavel to order. Uh, <laughs> Tracy Wiggins, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, first off, I want to start off with an apology because <laughs> I reached out at, I don't know when it was. I, I It wasn't even a private reach out. It was like a public thing. I was like, who wants to talk on the podcast? And then I just ghosted everybody. <laughs> <laughs> You know, most of the people, I think I got like two or three folks, but um, I stuck to my word. We figured it out, um, but I'm grateful. I wanted, just wanted to apologize for taking so long. Um, it's okay. It there's happen. been there's been things happening. <laughs> it's been a wild, a wild. There's uh, been some stuff going on in the world. <laughs> been some things, but I, I wanted to sort of, um, I, we texted a bit prior to this. I don't have necessarily a specific agenda. I think I'm curious to sort of talk about what comes up. I have some big picture things. I think I just want to sort of say out loud that are like, it seems to me like you're interested in this. Can you tell me why? And and we'll go from there. And if there's anything you want to talk to me about, (laughs) I have been finding it very interesting. I love it when somebody asks me a question. So um, with that said, I was thinking of when the first time was that you and I met Mm -hmm. and I believe it was 1998 at the the Ohio state university. And it was, Ohio State University. <laughs> you were doing, I believe it might have, my first kind of like seeing you in person was you were doing your, a doctoral recital mm-hmm. in Hughes Hall, I think. Probably, yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Um, and I remember sitting there as a 19-year-old kid who was just out of high school, really only could play C refractions, barely, <laughs> <laughs> you know, still can barely play it. But um, looking at you and being like, what in the holy hell did I get myself into, <laughs> you know? And I, I don't know if your memory of that, that, that day was any different. I'm sure you were inside your head with your doctoral recital, but as my sort of first prompt of like, this is where we right. met, like where, how, how's life been since the doctoral recital, Tracy? <laughs> well, let's see. I didn't finish my doctorate at the Ohio state university. So, okay. All right. <laughs> well, cause I, I mean, you remember that Michael Bump was there mm-hmm. at the time. And when I was finishing up my master's at New Mexico, we were kind of Schultes, Chris Schultes and I were kind of looking at, you know, where are places that he thought 
would be a good fit mm-hmm. for me, like to do my doctoral stuff. And Bump was kind of the name that kept kept coming up like the entire time we were having that conversation. Why? Just out of curiosity. I mean, I know Chris, I've just, kno- I'm, I'm getting to know Chris better now yeah. afterwards, but his name was always in the University of Akron world because mm-hmm. he's close with Larry Snyder and obviously right. his Cade work on Cage and all that stuff. But. Uh, but I think because they really knew each other really well through like the mm-hmm. new music, through what was then like the, uh, the, all the new music research committee stuff. That's right. Um, I forgot that Dr. Bump was like, he was very active in like, I know Larry and Stuart Smith mm-hmm. and there's a whole bunch of, there's a crew of folks who were sort of the rebels at PASIC who were like oh, doing yeah. stuff outside and, and I, I miss that, that Michael vibe. was in that mix. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I miss that vibe at PASIC by the way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they like all kind of that whole grouping kind of really started that whole, you know, rebellious side of like, we're going to take these like two days or whatever before PASIC and we're going to play all the stuff that nobody wants you to hear mm. actually at PASIC. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Bump was like really involved with that. And I think through that, Schultes really came to like respect, you know, him as, you know, for what he could do and everything. Mm-hmm. And then it was also that he, he happened to be at Ohio state, which, you know, once you, there's, there's a lot that goes into the, if you're wanting to get into the college teaching scene and sometimes it's what school name appears on your Vita every mm-hmm. once in a while, mm-hmm. you know? So I had done Oklahoma state, I'd done New Mexico and, you know, part of our thinking was that a big 10 ish type school with like instant name recognition would help some when it came into like that whole job scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because especially because I'd done a lot of the marching thing. And so we knew that any collegiate gig that I was probably going to be looking at was going to have the marching part as a part of what I was doing. And so having that name recognition of an Ohio State and being able to, like, have studied with Bump was kind of sort of the perfect storm of circumstances. Mm. So that's how I ended up there. And then I was only there for like a year (laughs) Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because once I got up there, everything was going great. It was awesome. And then um, Sanford University, where John Parks was at the time, posted a one year like sabbatical replacement. Parks was going to go to Eastman to do his doctoral residency. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they posted a one year gig. And so I applied for that, um, ended up getting it and moving down to uh, Birmingham Mm -hmm. to teach for what was supposed to be a year. And then I was going to go back to Ohio State and, you know, finish up. Um, Well, a lot happened in that year. Mm -hmm. Um, I, first of all, Parks didn't come back. He decided that he wanted to stay at Eastman longer. And this was before. So he was at Eastman before he got the job at Kansas. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also during that time, Bump left Ohio State. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so. Right. Because your first your your first your year at Ohio State was my freshman year. Right. Yeah. Um, And that's he left after right before, like over the summer before mm-hmm. my sophomore year, I remember getting a letter in the mail. I mean, this was all like, again, like for students who are listening to this, this was all pre-YouTube, pre-email. Yep. I mean, email was ex- it existed, but I checked it like once a month. Right. That's how important it was. And so I got a letter from the Ohio State University on paper. 
<laughs> typed out by a secretary. Right. That was just like your professor, Michael Bump, will not be coming back. You will have a guest professor, Michael Udall, who will only teach the doctoral students, and you'll be studying with Grant Dalton. And I was like, right. A letter in like August. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and so, and so when I got that, um, I was like, okay, well, this is a odd situation because mm-hmm. I'm out here. I'm not even going to be there for the year that Udall would be teaching me. And so I would be going back into a situation where I had no idea yeah. who, who it was going to be, who I'd have been studying with anything else. And, and that just, that whole thing just kind of left a little, a weird vibe to me. Mm-hmm. And so when I decided that I would stick around at Sanford because parks had not come back for a little bit, you know, get some teaching experience and stuff like that under my belt mm-hmm. is when I decided to reopen the reopen the possibilities of where I was going to like finish the degree. Mm. Um, and that was when I started looking at heart with Ben Toth mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because I started to find out more about him and his background. And I was really super into like the chamber music thing. Mm-hmm. Like I've never been that interested in being like a solo player. I'm actually really terrible at solo playing. Um, me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I like playing with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started to look more into like the program at heart and they had like the 2020 program. Yeah. Um, which if anybody doesn't know about that, it's a, I don't even know if they actually still have it in the version that it was. I think it's, uh, don't quote me on this. I think it's a slightly more evolved, yeah, a differently evolved program. Yeah. I think it does exist in sort of the spirit right. in which it was whenever, I mean, I applied at heart and applied, I actually didn't get into the 2020 program. When really? I yeah. Yeah. When which I, is odd how my life has turned out to be a chamber, <laughs> chamber, right. chamber music player. Yeah. It's um, so 2020 was like basically this collection of what they considered to be like the best, the top instrumental players in the program at -hmm. that time. And if you got in it, you didn't have to pay tuition while you were there. Well, at the time that I auditioned and got in it, I was the only, it was like the only time ever that I was the only percussionist in that group. Yeah. Um, because there was only one, I was there at a strange time, which anybody that knows the heart history knows that there's usually like a graduate quartet or something like that there at the time. Um, I was the only, there was one other graduate student in the program when I was there. Um, and she was a master student. So it was just, it was a, again, it was like an odd time to be there. So I was the only percussionist in 2020 at the time. Um, which means I got to play a lot of stuff, but let me ask, let me ask you, I mean, sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah. and this is, I, I think I, I feel like it's okay. Cause I told you up front, I was going to do this, but like, <laughs> like, like, um, as you're talking, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, there's things going off in my head that are like conversations I've been having for myself of like, what are the things if I could go back and change about my, mm-hmm. my studies, my, my decision-making, like, it's interesting when you're talking about your decision-making process to go to Ohio state. Like now, as a 20 years later, 30 years later, like you can look at that and be like, boy, was I being superficial about what I thought people wanted to see. Right. You know, yeah. same for myself. I went to Ohio State because of the Ohio State marching band. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who Michael Bump was. 
Right. <laughs> in hindsight, I'm glad I got to meet him, and he's a lovely man, mm-hmm. and he's one of my part of my family, like all that yeah. shit. But, but I wanted yeah. to march script to Ohio, baby girl. That's what I wanted to of do. Of course, and that's what a lot of people did. <laughs> and as soon as I got there, and then I get that letter from from the school in August of before my second year, I'm like, boy, was I being superficial. <laughs> but yep. now, as a 41 year old, right, I'm looking back and I think. If Bump hadn't left when he did, if I hadn't gotten that letter, I wouldn't have formed as tight a bond as I did with Andy Beal and Rudy Rohan mm-hmm. and formed a trio when we were there, which then the, the three of us were like, we would go to like Steak and Shake after rehearsal at three in the morning and, you know, right. we were up in 24 hours and we would sit there and be just like, you know, like 20 year olds do. We're just like, fuck this place. We could do better. <laughs> you know, like, let's burn it down. Like, we, ah. and then we all ended up, trans- we, we agreed at a Steak and Shake that we were all going to transfer out. Like oh, really? was, we felt like it was this big revolution, you know, <laughs> and, and, but it's like, man, had that moment not happened, I wouldn't have, there was a little fire lit in my ass that it became yeah. clear to me that like, like I had no animosity towards Michael Bump, but I was just like my second year is like, and no animosity towards Grant Dalton either. But I was like, right. if I'm not going to drown, it's going to be because I flap my goddamn arms. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and so for a year I was just doing this and now the muscles I use the most are these muscles <laughs> and, and I'm really, right. I'm really grateful that I, that yeah. I that had that experience. So I'm ca- kind of curious for you looking back, mm-hmm. how have you, what's the autopsy been on your decision-making process and what you, what, what you're glad you did and what you, what you, what you wish you would have done differently. Um, I'm not sure that I would redo any of what I did, you know, cause mm-hmm. there's been, there've been so many decisions along the way, like even just going back to like my master's degree, mm-hmm. you know, because when I was applying there, it was, you know, uh, New Mexico, Northwestern, which would have been Burrett's first year mm-hmm. at Northwestern, mm-hmm. um, Boston Conservatory, which Boston mm-hmm. Conservatory was interesting because when I was talking with Nancy there, she was like, don't come here. And I was like, that's an interesting thing to hear. She's like, we don't have any, we don't have any scholarship money. Oh, it's like, you're not going to get anything. And that's how, that's actually how I ended up going up to study with her during the summers. Uh So I would go up and like, basically live at like one year, I lived at like her mother's house for like two, for like two or three weeks in Princeton. Um, And then go over and like two or three times a week, take a listen. I had like, we hauled my marimba up there and like set it up in one of the practice rooms in the music building at Princeton and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but so it's like, so I had this like totally different experience studying with her and I managed to do that and go to New Mexico to study with easily, probably one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life and will probably ever meet in my life in Chris Schultes. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, and then I also applied at the University of Utah. And again, the decision-making, I I sort of knew who Chris Schultes was, but I didn't really know. Mm-hmm. Like my undergrad teacher, Wayne Bobenshin, knew. This is how all of this ties back together. He went to, he was a high school kid when Chris Schultes was at Michigan State. And he decided to go to Michigan State when he saw Chris Schultes play drum set on the field with the Michigan State marching band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All roads lead to marching band as a team. All roads lead to marching band. And so then he went to Michigan State. Then he ended up at Ohio at Oklahoma State. Mm -hmm. And then he knew Chris was at New Mexico. He knew that in, you know, my last couple of years at school, I'd really started to get into, you know, Crum and Schwantner and, you know, things that were a little left of center 
of what your typical undergrad, especially back in like the early nineties was interested in. Mm -hmm. And so he thought that Schultes might be like a good choice. Well, the choice predominantly came down to New Mexico gave me the most money, (laughs) you know, because again, kind of like what you said, I sort of superficially knew who Chris was and what he did and everything Mm -hmm. like that. But I didn't really know until like I got out there. Well, this is yeah. this is one of the things as a teacher now. I'm sort of like you know I'm sure. Uh, I mean, it's different for every teacher and every student. Yeah. But like sometimes part of your teaching is teaching students how to make decisions. That's a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes it's like, yeah. what stick do you use, or what sticking mm-hmm. is one sort of learning how to make a decision. But then there's like, do I take this gig or not? Right. It doesn't pay well. It only pays seventy five bucks. But I heard we were supposed to get two fifty. What's fair? What's not fair? And like. <laughs> Yeah. That sort of thing is like, again, like, okay, well, let's have a process for this. How do you learn about that? Yeah. Um, where where do you find yourself now, like, that you're 20 some odd years into teaching and you have now some, you have a, you have a, you, you have a body count of, right. of, you have a trail of students that you left in your wake. They are what, in my wake. I apologize are, to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have many in my wake too, but like, what but, are some of the things now as a teacher that like you sort of see in your students and you're sort of like, okay, I need to change this, but here's actually where I'm right. Like, where where right. are the things now after 20 years of teaching where you're like, nope, thought I was wrong on this. I'm right. I think, I think part of it is my students have a wide, a wide range of interests. Like, and they, they are very sure, even as like freshmen coming in mm-hmm. that they know what it is that they want to do down the line. And I do think a lot of that's, you know, the internet and stuff like that. They're exposed to so many more things, you know, back when I, back when I was an undergrad, it was like, you know, I would get the Keiko, I would get, like get the Weiss catalog, which was still in hard copy, mm-hmm. go through with the highlighter, order the CDs and stuff like that. Now you just like, you Google something or throw it up on YouTube or whatever. So I feel like they have, they have a little bit broader understanding of like the different types of things that you can do. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I think I'm most certain of is that there's still, there's still a set of skills that runs through all of those things that they sometimes don't feel like they need to know, but I know that they do need to know them. Like what? Um, I mean, obviously like technique on like various instruments is, is one of them, but also just understanding how all of them, all of the music is interrelated in a lot of ways, you know, like all of the, all of the music that they want to make. Well, it still goes back to like a lot of like Bach and things like that, you know, as far as like how the, how the chords are structured and everything. Um, so I'll, so the thing I get a lot of times is why are we taking all of this theory stuff when anybody with a computer and pro tools can start to write music? And I'm like, well, they, they can write some, they can write a music, but the idea that we're trying to give you is the ability to expand what you can do with that. Um, you know, and I'm, and I'm saying this from the fact that I think that there's a lot of things that are broken with the music curriculum at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've spent a lot of my time 
in the last year, really since all of this pandemic began, like reevaluating how and why we do everything that we do. Well, can um, I ask you on that point? Yeah. Sorry, sorry to get interrupted. Okay. But like, uh, I, I see people all the time say, "Burn the system down," right? You know, or the system's broken, or the system is doing exactly what it was built to do. Mm-hmm. And again, like, uh, I'm not necessarily arguing with the sort of premise of each right. of those arguments, but my question is always like, I, I just a guy who hates, I hate meetings, and I mm-hmm. hate. I hate when people are just sort of like forever just being like, well, I wonder it's like, let's try something. Let's do something. You know, let's let's just, let's just throw a dart at the wall and see where it lands. And, um, I'm curious, like what, I don't know exactly how to ask the question here, but like for your students, how do you teach them about this stuff? How do you teach them that there is a process to decision-making and that there is a process towards, um, that this stuff is all connected I think um, a lot of it is bringing other people in, mm-hmm. mm. you know, because a thing that can happen a lot of times in like a university program and stuff like that is you can live in a vacuum, mm-hmm. right? You hear like one voice all the time, you know? And so there becomes this, um, this relationship of where, well, this is the only thing that I've heard for the entire time that I've been there. And so that must mean that that is, that that's what it is. Um, and so one of the things that we do here is like, we've got, we have seven percussion faculty here, um, which is crazy. But part of it is that I want them to hear other voices all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things that we do too, is that these people that are these, a lot of these people that are teaching are teaching like very specific things. Like we've got Andy Crespi who teaches Irish power. Mm. You know, we've got um, Mark Katsunis who teaches, you know, Middle Eastern hand drumming and stuff like that. And they, they get the chance to study with these people that specialize in these other instruments from these other cultures and everything. But by doing that, they get to start to see where the common elements Mm. are among the language of all of these different cultures and everything. Well, it's interesting. I mean, as you say that I'm thinking about like, like there's a lot of similarities to the program you're describing to what's Mm -hmm. happening at NYU where I've had most of my like on the ground, like collegiate, I mean, I'm, I'm adjunct there. I run the steel band and I do chamber music. You know, I don't teach private lessons there, but right. But there is a shift I've noticed in terms of things that that are like broken that need fixed in our mm-hmm. system. I think I'm very fortunate to have had two teachers like Larry Snyder and Bob Van Sice. Both of, I mean, uh, how do I say this? Um, <laughs> uh, okay, Larry's family. I, I was with Larry for like six years. I mean, I was right. with him for a long time. I transferred. I lost all my classes, so I had to take an extra year. Like I would, Larry is. He's Larry's my your guy. He's my guy, and I'd take a bullet for yeah. I would take a bullet for, for Bob, too, but right. studying with Bob in a two-year thing was a very intense, very different mm-hmm. vibe. But you get this cult of personality sort of vibe, and it's like I, I realized at Yale, it's like, oh, if I want to study steel drums, I have to study with Bob. Right. There's no steel drum band yeah. here. And, and now I decided to turn that into a superpower and be like, well, Bob knows nothing about this instrument. Let me trust his ears more than somebody else mm-hmm. who know, thinks they know what they're hearing, which was yeah. great. But over time now, I think like NYU, Jonathan Haas at NYU is very, he's, he's a very confident person and has many big ideas, but he's always the first to be like, 
I don't know anything about steel drums. And so I'm going right. to bring in Josh to teach it. I don't know anything about African drumming. So I'm going to have Valley Narano teach it. I don't know anything about Broadway pit playing. So I'm going to have Jim Saparito teach all the xylophones. Like, he's very much a diversifying teacher in terms of his studio. And I think that is a shift that's slowly happening that I think mm-hmm. means less money for all the teachers, sadly. Right. But I think in terms of the moral arc of humanity (laughs) might actually land us somewhere slightly healthier. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's really, you know, like what Jonathan said is, it is really like the argument that I used when I started to bring up doing Mm. all of this, you know, when I first got to my job, um, one of the, one of the knocks that I actually got like in a written evaluation was I brought in too many guest artists. (laughs) I was like, I, I've I've never heard of this being a thing. What was the critique? It was that it cost us too much money, or they no? Just it was that it made it seem like I did not know how to do the things that I was bringing in guest artists to do. And did you say and, to them, "I don't"? Well, well I said I <laughs> like, know. That's why I'm I know enough in. of it. But the the thing that I said is that, like for example, we have uh, Tom Hurst teaches drum set for us. I don't know if you know Tom, but he's uh, Tracy Lawrence's touring drummer, you know, in the Nashville scene, in the recording scene and stuff like that. Um, is that I can obviously play drum set. I've played drum set my entire life, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to teach the skills that are needed for a drum set player at this time. Like somebody who lives, eats, breathes drum set on a regular basis in the industry in which drum set is the primary thing. You know, he's going to know, you know, when I walk into a job, I have to be able to do X, Y, Z, blah, 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 blah. thanks. And so that's what his, that's what his curriculum is built around when he teaches. It's the same thing with all these other instruments. Um, well, I got some so, advice early on, too, that was just like, the worst thing you can do for your career is take a gig you're not qualified for. Right. Like, like you're hungry. Oh, my God, I got to pay the rent and I don't have food in the, in the cupboard. I get a call to play a jazz drum set gig for $175. <laughs> that would be the worst decision of my life to take yeah. that $175 because I'll sound terrible and I'll never work again, at least not right. in jazz <laughs> drums. And like, yeah. like that was an, imp- that was a thing that was not immediately apparent to me as a student. It never crossed my mind. Like I was just like, I'll take every gig. It's like, ha 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 ha. Hold, hold up. Right. You can play C refractions. You should not take a gig at the local art gallery to play an hour long marimba concert. Right. Yeah. That's just and, true. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. but that's a fact. Yeah. And so we, you know, when we started, when I started coming up with the idea, I mean, this whole thing with all of these faculty and stuff like that is really modeled on what Toth does at heart, Yeah. you know, with the, with the uh, guest artist, you know, where it's like spring to fall, they're there for like a full year. Right. It's like he's had Dave Samuels, mm-hmm. um, uh, Joe yeah. Like there's been a bunch of folks in the, in the percussion world who have really sat. And, and again, like yeah. no value judgments as to whether or not you think any of those folks are good or bad, but just like right. sitting with somebody for a year as a guest is really important and can influence yeah. you heavily. Yeah. When I got, I mean, when I got there, my first semester of lessons, I had part of my lesson with Toth and part of my lesson was with Glenn Velez. Right. I saw you left off Glenn Velez, perhaps one of the most important ones in that whole mix. Yeah. And so I get there for the beginning of my doctorate and I'm sitting in a room, just me and Glenn Velez, you know, talking through like how to, you know, play frame drums, you know, and sitting there like doom, 
doom, doom, <laughs> doom, you know, for however long it took to get that down. And so I started thinking about how could I bring that kind of experience to my kids here in the wilds of Northwestern Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, at the time we had a department chair that was really open to, you know, trying a lot of new things. Um, and we had been, we had gotten the guest artist thing straightened out to where people understood that, no, I was, I was bringing in guest artists because 99% of the time when you bring in a guest artist, they reinforce what you've already been saying. Right. In they got to hear the words. same, they got to hear the same thing from, from a, yep. just in, from a, from a different person yep. in order for it to stick. So we decided to go this route where, so like, um, Mark, I mean, Mark lives in New York, you know, cause his day job is playing at the dance studios up there and subbing in on Broadway and stuff like that. Um, Tyler Tolls teaches jazz vibraphone for us. Well, Tyler was living in San Diego because he was in the Air Force Band of the Golden West. Mm-hmm. So I convinced the chair at the time that we actually rigged up one of our practice rooms with, you know, like microphones and cameras and everything mm-hmm. like that for them to be able to do. We've been doing online lessons since five years before the pandemic hit. <laughs> You're at the tip of the um, spear, Tracy. That's like... I've, well, my, our kids didn't freak out when we had to go online last spring because they'd already been doing it. Well, this is, this is interesting. I mean, this is the thing that, like, I was talking with Doug Perkins uh, earlier this morning. We did a podcast, and we were talking about some of the things I'm what, – what I felt guilty about mm-hmm. in the pandemic and then what I have grown to be sort of grateful for about what mm-hmm. I felt guilty about, which is, like, in so percussion for 10 years prior to the pandemic, we were just, like, socking – chestnuts away like we're mm-hmm. squirrels we're just like ah, we might need this one we might need this one we're hiding yeah. away pandemic hits everybody's freaking out and we're just like thank god we put all those nuts away <laughs> you know and yeah. and i remember there's one nut we didn't put away which was zoom and about mm-hmm. six months prior to to the pandemic our development director who who's no longer with us but she mm-hmm. she's like you know we should try the zoom thing and i and we were all just like you're crazy <laughs> you right. know and we just didn't we didn't look at it and all of a sudden the pandemic hits and we're all sort of like, how do you share a screen? And I'm sharing chat threads where I'm making fun of Murray Mast. And I'm, I'm like sharing a chat thread to like 300 people making fun of my best friend. Like, right. Had I, had I buried a few of those nuts earlier, it might've been a different scenario. I mean, for me. it's good for Murray to have that happen to him. Though, so. <laughs> Full disclosure, you know, Murray well, and I, Murray's one yes. of my good buddies. So we can yeah. say that about him. Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, I had never, we'd never used Zoom cause we'd been doing, um, they'd all been using like uh, Google stuff yeah. for like the, for like the online lessons and everything. So, but it, it was like still Chrome, a, Google. It was the same principle. Something like that. Yeah. You know? Um, and so we had had, we had had faculty, like they were taking weekly lessons with these guys on this stuff online. Um, you know, and to kind of wrap it back around, it's also the fact that the other thing, that made me, there's my dog. You can cut this part if you need to. I have dogs. It's fine. The, the, the male truck drove by. <laughs> That's a, that is a traumatic experience. I get it. Yeah. What kind of dog do you have? He is a German Shepherd Mutt mix. Okay. So if you pull his ears, he's got floppy ears, but if you pull him up, he looks exactly like a German Shepherd. Okay. All right. Nice. Um, but um, to kind of bring it back around to what we were talking about a second ago is that um, – 
when everything happened with like the pandemic and stuff like that, and everybody started to like also look at like just how society is mm-hmm. at this point and re-examining so much of like the music world, you know, with looking at like, you know, all the different types of like appropriation and all of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that came back up and everything like that. Um, it made me realize that the other thing that's really good is that we had started to already expose our students with the idea that all of this music is not from here, Mm, you know, mm. and they were already learning the traditions from, you know, other cultures and the roots of other cultures. And they were starting to already be able to make connections to all of that before it like hit that, you know, we really should be doing that. <laughs> well, can I ask you on that tip? Um, and please, if if any of this gets into territory that is just That's a fine. little too touchy, you can just be like, nope. Yeah. And I'm totally, I'm a big boy. Yeah. But um, one of the things that was highlighted for me in sort of like a beautiful mind where like everything just appears, and you're like, oh my God, like I can't believe that was there, was this sense that we're not a unified nation in the sense that like everybody from Alabama to New York to Chicago to Des Moines, Iowa to South Dakota to LA is going to somehow all come to the same conclusions at the same time because we're America. Like all of a sudden it mainly through social media, seeing the sort of siloed nature in the way that we all exist um, being like, man, the, the, the issues in New York city right now, like in September around the Steve Reich quote that got put up on Twitter. Um, I'm having I'm doing stuff interviews for the drumming at 50 website in the context of all this knowing that the drumming at 50 website isn't coming out till February. The world's on fire in my corner in September, but then I'm texting with a friend of mine who's living in Chicago and he's like, "What?" He has no idea that mm-hmm. that the things I'm worried about are, are are things that are even happening. And I'm curious for you just and again, I, you don't need to pontificate on anything other than right. your particular viewpoint mm-hmm. where you're at. Like what how have the conversations been going within your studio um, amongst your your students in terms of how like what's the level of discourse around race, around appropriation, around I'm sort of observing something on the outside as being like, oh man, we're going nowhere fast if all we're doing right. is talking online. But in reality, in your department, those conversations are happening face to face, maybe over beers, right. over coffee, over a yeah. rehearsal break or something like what have you noticed in, in the way that those conversations are happening? Well, um, one thing is we have actually a super diverse studio. Mm. Um, like we, like if you look at like a picture of our studio, we have, we have a wide range of, you know, people in it, mm-hmm. um, which is actually kind of unique for, you know, a, institution of like our nature in the state that we're in mm-hmm. uh, we we do manage to get you know a lot of people from a lot of different like backgrounds and everything like that and so what makes it interesting is we have all of those different we have all of those different viewpoints mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. our studio together um and we i mean we have had to a few times have awkward conversations about you know, things like, you know, racial things that, you know, a student might say that with their upbringing and stuff like that, they don't think of it 
mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. Right. But another student that's in the studio sees it very, very differently. Mm. And so we have had to, you know, it hasn't been a lot, you know, but there have been a couple of times where we've had to like to sit down and talk about, you know, you have to think about how everything fits together and how everybody, you know, we're all trying to, we're all here in one place. We're all here as like one group. You know, there's not, I will firmly believe that there's nothing in a university setting that gets closer than a percussion studio Mm. because they're together all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, because they're having to share the practice rooms at a school like ours, the the marching band is like a huge thing. So they're together like every day in like drumline and then they're together in percussion ensemble. And, you know, they're just, they're around each other so much. And everybody's together. And the thing that everybody's, I mean, everybody in an accounting firm is around each other too. Right. It's just the thing at the accounting firm they're working on has a defined result. Yep. The answer is going to be zero. If it balances out, if we don't have an extra penny somewhere, we're all heroes. Great yep. job. In yep. the music world, you're all, you're all working towards a subjective result, mm-hmm. which means right. you all may love it, but somebody may hate it. The New York Times yep. may loathe it, <laughs> you know, yep. and, and, and in, in that inherent tension. Right brings some of these other things like race and gender and how those play out in society. Right. It's sort of like, well, if you don't have a defined end result, you're going to look at the other things that are defined race, mm-hmm. gender, yeah. and then how those play out. And, and um, so anyway, I, just to say like, I'm, I'm the things I've noticed in my travels in terms of doing mm-hmm. master classes is the most diverse studios I've been in have been the ones in the South. Yeah. And, and I think, I think part of it is that, you know, the South I mean, I will free the South gets a bad rap Mm, a lot of the time, you know, because there, I mean, I've lived all over the place and you're genuinely not going to find nicer people than a lot of the people that are in the South. Now that Mm. does not mean that that always translates over to the politics Mm-hmm. of the South, because there's so much that with gerrymandering and everything else that yeah. goes into it, there's so much that goes into it. But, you know, a lot of times we'll have these conversations and they'll, they'll just genuinely be like, you know, I have never had to think of it in that manner, mm. you know, and we've never, we've never had any long running, long lasting issues that we haven't been able to resolve. One thing that I will say has been a big change that I've seen in the last year, and I think this is an important change, is the students are more open to speaking out Mm -hmm. when there are issues. Um, Because for a very long time, um, racial issues, gender issues, stuff like that would kind of get – they would hold it all in. Mm. Because they were they were afraid for various reasons of mm-hmm. you know saying anything about it, mm-hmm. and I think one of the biggest sea changes that I've seen at least with my students in the last year is they're still not you know necessarily like shouting from the hilltops in like the middle of the rehearsal or something like that, but they're much more open to coming to me and saying, "All right, we're having this issue." Mm-hmm. And and I I think that's a very positive change because at least then we can start to talk about it. Yeah, you know because before then I just had to guess. 
Yeah. I mean, some of it too, as a teacher, like I, I, it's like trying to, I mean, I, it, it, it hits me most at places like SOSI when we're in person where mm-hmm. you've got a bunch of people in the room who don't know each other and you've got two weeks to have a concert. Right. Some of the stresses that come up in that are things that like you're trying to diagnose. Is this like a gender issue or is this an interpersonal miscommunication? Right. Like there, right. there are degrees, there are levels, there's yeah. first, second, third degree murder for a reason. Yeah. Like, and what, what's happening here? And is this just general sort of band fight? Is the band having a fight? Right. Cause band fights are normal. Yeah. But is this a race thing? Is this a gender thing? And trying to figure out as a teacher, like I have students coming to me all the time with, with issues. And mm-hmm. to be honest, sometimes I'm like, I think you're just having a band fight. Right. <laughs> this isn't, this isn't yeah. like Malcolm X worthy, like right. making a sign and standing on the street corner. I think you guys just need to go have a beer and work it out. Yeah. But I and could I think, be misdiagnosing stuff too, you know? Yeah. And I think it's the same thing. Like I, I have the same thing at this point, but I think the important thing is, is now I can actually have a shot at figuring that out. Mm. Yeah. You know, in the past, I just had to kind of try to guess like, okay, these two, these two people, like I've got them playing a duo and they just really don't seem to be vibing. Let me try to guess what it is now, at least if there's like something going on interpersonally, one of the, like, they'll actually come to me and be like, this isn't, working can we discuss why it's not working Mm -hmm. and i do think that that's a good positive change like our campus has been really active you know like we've got a we actually have a center for social inclusion Mm -hmm. on our campus now that is like super active and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and so i think all of that has been recent positive changes that have come out of this the world being on fire for a while Mm-hmm. Um, so well, what, what are some things, uh, I kind of want to ask you, uh, and, and I'm asking, I want to ask a question out of complete ignorance here okay. as a man, as a man who rounded out the big O on script Ohio, uh-huh. I, I do have a soft spot in my heart for marching bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are part, I would say on the pie of your life, there's a mm-hmm. pretty big percentage of it that is involved with marching band, yeah. it, just historically speaking, if not necessarily right now, but like, historically, no, it still you, is. <laughs> you, have, you have a big background in it. I have a question in general about <laughs> I'm asking the question knowing that the chamber music economy is non-existent but like mm-hmm. what are your ethical how do you deal with the ethical responsibility of sorry <laughs> let me let me join this for 2 seconds um I have noticed that there is a shit load of students who land in the marching world mm-hmm. And then, and then in PASIC, you go to a place like PASIC, and I know that Bands of America is held conjunctively with PASIC, and it sometimes mm-hmm. feels like those two overlap in weird ways that aren't clear. But, like, a lot of the market is centered towards, like, all of the sticks and marimba mallets. Not all of them, but a lot of the sticks, drumsticks, marimba mallets, things that get developed by product companies are for drum lines. Like it's if you're a, if you're a marimba player in a pit orchestra and you've been there for a lot a long time you're gonna have more a better chance getting a marimba mallet made by these companies than you are if you're so percussion and that is just I'm not there's no value judgment there I'm just saying it's true because we don't bring any money in right <laughs> you know in the marching bands there's more of a market for it but the thing that's curious to me is that everybody ages out at 21. Mm-hmm. Why do I feel like that is just 
that is a feedback loop that has got to not be sustainable. Like what, what am I missing about the number of people who are being pushed towards marching band as a career mm-hmm. versus what are the actual opportunities on the back end in the marching world? Or should I just be okay with the idea that it is a, it's an awesome experience that kids get to have between the ages of 16 and 21 and that's all it needs to be. Right. I think, I think that's two different things. I think that's two things. Like one, the, the experience of it, um, you know, there, I mean, there's even problems with the 16 to 21 thing. When you look at like WGI or more so DCI drum Corps, mm-hmm. where like for a long time, I mean, again, in the last year or two, a ton of stuff has come out about issues with putting 16 year olds and 21 year olds on a bus together and traveling them all over the country. Um, and 16 year olds and 23 year old staff members mm-hmm. travel. I mean, there's been a ton that has come up with that. So that's like a, that's a societal thing with all of that now, mm-hmm. but the experience, I mean, I tell everyone I wouldn't be doing what I was doing right now without the four years that I spent doing the drum corps thing, Mm. because I, that's where I learned how to like really like try to like perfect something to a degree that I had never tried Mm. to previously in my life. You know, it was the hardest work, you know, that I've really ever had to do. Mm. Um, and so there is, I think there is something to that. I think one of the things that happens a lot of times is we forget that in a music program and stuff like that, a very, very small percentage of students is going to go on to do anything with music once they complete that program. Mm -hmm. Right. Especially like high school kids. Right. And so if they have a great time, doing marching band during that time. And that makes them want to be supportive of like band programs and stuff like that, the rest of their life, then I am totally cool with that. You know, at our university, half of our, our drum line is about split. Half of it is like the music majors and half of it is non-majors. The non-majors mm-hmm. are like accounting majors, pre-med majors, stuff like that, that they just want to drum. You know, and they enjoy the experience and the camaraderie of being around it and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that a lot of times the marching thing gets not necessarily a bad rap, but it's not looked at for the fact that, you know, it provides something for people that honestly, not every kid that goes through has to be able to play a marimba. You know, they can, they can enjoy playing a snare drum, getting really good at playing a snare drum or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that can be a great experience for them, you know, but then they do like, there's the age out thing at like 21 or whatever. And then I run into this a lot of times with a lot of my students too, because they've grown up in that multi marching band culture. Mm-hmm. And so they feel like that's going to be like what they continue to do. Right. And they can't, there are a lot of people that make a great living or at least a decent living doing the marching thing, but you have to, 
you know, there's a, a lot of them have like, you know, secondary, like it's like with anything else, you've got to have like the multiple revenue streams. Yeah. Nobody's a, so, there's not, there's no such thing as a solo Marva player. Right. <laughs> Na- you you know, know, Evelyn Glennie is not a solo, Nancy Zeltzman, not a right. solo Marva player. They yeah. teach, they do other things. And that's, and it's the same thing in like the marching field. Mm-hmm. You know, they might be, um, you know, the people that like do a lot of, you know, like arranging, you know, cause I mean, the thing that people forget is that, there's all every high school around basically has a band program and has percussion in it and they need percussion things. So there is work out there for people that are wanting to do it and are interested in doing it and wanting to put in the time to learn how to do it at like, just like with anything else at a high level. Mm. Um, But so they have to like, but there's a lot of like piecing things together. Yeah. You know, like you might become like you might get really, really good at being like a, you know, an, an arranger. OK, well, you know that there's a window of time during the year in which you're going to be in a day for like December to May is where they're going to be doing like it's going to be heavy, like writing season for like the next year and stuff like that. Well, then there's got to be something that's kind of around that, you know, so you'll see a lot of them that might be like teachers or, um, you know, I know a lot of like people that are like in real estate Hmm. that are like really, really like big names in like the marching world or uh, like Mike McIntosh who teaches like the Cavaliers and stuff like that. He's selling solar panels Hmm. and like has like a really good, like solid, like career doing that along with all of his writing and arranging and working with the Cavaliers and stuff like that, that, you know, having that solid, you know, income and everything allows him to be able to do this other stuff that he's interested in doing, you know? So what I tell my students is that one, just like with anything else, you have to be good to get into that, you know? And it's like with, with anything else, like, you know, that if you if you go to play a gig, you can tell pretty automatically if like whoever you're playing with can't actually play. Right. Mm-hmm it's pretty like you like the the feel is not there. The time is not there or whatever. It's the same thing with like the marching thing. Mm. You can tell pretty quickly if someone actually knows what they're talking about in that idiom. There was, and so sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Go, go ahead. Sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. No, yeah. I was just going to say like, for me, the most, <laughs> the moment when I was clear to me, I knew nothing about the marching arts. <laughs> Um, was when I was at Ohio State, actually, my my second year. I was there for two years, and I transferred out my junior year. And Doc, Dr. James Moore was the percussion instructor at, at Ohio State in the marching band. Uh, he used to teach right. percussion there in general, but uh, he was the guy that I – that was my – he was my drumline instructor at Ohio mm-hmm. State. And it was very traditional, very old school, mm-hmm. you know, nard, 25 rudiments <laughs> vibe, right? Mm-hmm. And he was he's one of my heroes. He was a great man, mm-hmm. just a genuinely good person. And he brought in Brian Mason mm-hmm. f- to do a class with us. And Brian wrote one of the solos for this particular show. Mm-hmm. And bro, <laughs> <laughs> bless his heart. But there's, and I say that, I say that not in the parlance of the South in terms of what that means in the South, right. but like yeah. <laughs> that motherfucker tried so hard. And I feel like if I ever were to meet him now, I would just give him a hug and be like, I'm so sorry. But it was like, oh, Oh wow. It's a different there's, language. There's a language here and this is yeah. what I'm doing is is military style mm-hmm. 
traditional marching band. Yep. And that's a different thing than what Brian Mason does, which is mm-hmm. drum corps style, yep. where the focus, the reason for the music being, the, the playing being what it was, was not, its primary focus was not to keep everybody else in step, mm-hmm. which is what a military band drummer's role right. primarily was. So that's why all of the Ohio State marching band stuff was jump em, biggity, dum, 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 jump em, biggity. Like, that's it. Yep. And it served its purpose as good as any other thing could serve. Mm-hmm. But when Brian Mason walked in the room, I was like, oh. mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how to do this. I can't right. go. Bar, 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 and he's just up there blowing chops. And I'm, you know, anyway, that was a very revealing moment for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and because now it's like it's it's orchestration. I mean, they talk about it as orchestration, mm-hmm. you know, and they talk you talk about it in the context of like, you know, how does this tenor line fit with this marimba line that's going in the front ensemble and everything? Mm-hmm. And then. Mm-hmm. The next layer is adding all of the the pervasiveness of the electronics mm-hmm. that's involved too, and so now you've got people in that field that are like they're electronics specialists. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's what they do. Like uh, Tom McGillan, who I went to school with as an undergrad, like has built a career being one of the go to dudes in marching electronics. Mm. You know, like doing all of the you know set up like getting people like the right setup that they need to be able to do all that. Cause like everything is mic now mm-hmm. and like all of the, like you see like the big, huge, like front ensemble on the front of the field, everything down there is mic'd at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And so, and the, for a good reason, it's changed how they play. They don't have to use like super hard mallets where they're like, and overplaying the instruments and stuff like that to be heard. Mm. So now you see more like concert percussion technique mm. being used in the front ensemble. Well, I think but, that's a, that's a, well, that's a sort of like in terms of things that I, mm-hmm. I've always felt like this is these two things, this is broken and needs to be fixed. So these mm-hmm. things can fit together is the sort of marching approach to sound and attack oh, as definitely. having, as having to be this thing that is like, and I'm being a cartoon here, but just like, pop. Yeah. And I'm mm-hmm. and the idea that miking and proper acoustical sort of representation is actually leading to a more depth of sound and less attack being the sort of primary focus. Right. Like as you're saying, like I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, and we, um, you know, here we are so like with our front ensemble, like it's a very orchestral like approach, you know, mm-hmm. and we want that. With our with our battery percussion, the thing that we relate to the most often is that it's like playing jazz drum set. Mm, mm. You know, like if you're playing like a swing pattern on a ride cymbal, if you're going ping, ping, ding, 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 nobody's going to listen to you do that. But if you're relaxed, the stick is rebounding, ding, 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 ding. Like we talk to them about that. Like that's the approach, mm. and so that has really that has actually shifted mm. a lot over the years. So the thing that we tell our students is we don't have time in our lives to teach you how to play marching snare drum and orchestral snare drum. We don't have time to teach you how to play marching band marimba and, and orchestral. Like we want to teach you how to play snare drum. And so like our approach for Mm. playing snare drum is rooted in like drum set and like what we teach them on like concert stuff. Now the strokes like not as heavy like we like consciously like talk about, you know, lightening the stroke up and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But the, the physics of how we create the stroke, we play with a crap ton of arm mm-hmm. 
you know, like everything is like we use all of that kind of motion. You know, I'm from the shoulder, talk- baby. I'm from yeah, the, I'm actually talk- I'm from the waist. I, I yeah. everything for me comes from the waist. <laughs> and we talk all the time about how if like if you feel tension in anything that you're doing, you're doing it wrong. Mm. And that's that is a way that the whole marching thing has definitely evolved in you know the last several years. Because it, when I mean when I first came up, I remember it being from the wrist, you know, articulate everything, stroke out everything. And now there is a movement. Now there are still groups that still do that, mm-hmm. but there is a movement to a more relaxed, more fluid, more letting the sticks and the head do all of the work for you kind of approach. Mm-hmm. And so because I remember that, that I remember that there used to be a time where the marching thing was like so separated from like how orchestral stuff was done that mm. there were teachers around the country that like if they heard that you had a background in marching percussion, they weren't even going to look at you for their studio. Well, but also within the marching worlds, I'm just mm-hmm. guessing here, but I'll bet there was some pretty serious click clicks happening between. So you have like Phantom Regiment. But then mm-hmm. in, in Cavaliers or whatever, and I'm right. just naming the two biggest ones. If, if, right. Uh, you the know, two uh, big West, Cadets of Bergen County. I'm just like saying things that I've yes. seen on Facebook. <laughs> um, but then you have groups like the Ohio State Marching Band or Purdue mm-hmm. that are, that maybe are looked at as like oh, boring, like not mm-hmm. not really high quality players. But then you've got the traditional black college bands like that are mm-hmm. a whole style of marching in and of themselves that are fucking badass. They but really, are, really are, are neither the military style or drum right. corps. Yep. And so like how I'm curious, has that sort of dissonance been reconciling itself over time or is there still clickishness there or was there not clickishness to begin with? And I just misread it. No, there's, it's still clicky when it comes to those kinds of things, mm. but we all know that there's the online keyboard warriors mm-hmm. in like every area. And so I think the people that are clickish when it comes to that are more that than the people that are actually doing that stuff at this point. Yeah. Like one of the best clinics I've ever seen at PASIC was when Lamont Lahorn took North Carolina A&T's drumline in and they had they got like a clinic spot to go through like how they do things and why they do things and it was great you know the sense of like groove and style and those dudes can play mm-hmm. you know those kids like they play really super well um and i think it was so eye opening to a lot of people you know to see that and you know i think that you do start to see like you see like more traditional schools adapting things from like other perks, like Ohio state, like they now they do the super traditional thing still at pregame, mm-hmm. but how they play during halftime has changed pretty dramatically since That's, Mark Reynolds took over there. Well, and since I was in the band, I mean, it's yeah. now, I would say it's now, at least in terms of is Mark Reynolds, the percussion. He's, he's who's doing the drum line there. Now. Yeah. It's yeah. The, the, I would not make it in the high state marching band right now. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I don't, yeah. it's just the truth. And uh, I think the level of playing has definitely gone up yeah. there. since. Well, and he'll, he'll say, like I've heard him say in interviews and I've talked to him about it before is that, that there were, they had reached the point where there were kids that were not, that were not interested in being there because of that approach. Mm-hmm. 
and he knew that they needed to modernize it. Cause I mean, you look at groups like Michigan state DI thing and the DCI thing and my predecessor here, Ian Moyer is like the, was the front ensemble director for like several cores. He's at like Boston Crusaders now and stuff like that. So that's always been like, that's always been a part of the culture. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's always, that's always been a part of the gig. Well, I appreciate you talking me through this. Um, yeah. I, you know, I appreciate my, my awkwardness with asking the, the marching band yeah. question, but it's something that's been on my mind um, yeah. just the last couple, the last 10 years, really just sort of observing how, you know, how the field moves and, and how, how sort of uh, ideas are changing and approaches are changing mm-hmm. over time in the field. And uh, Tracy, I have stolen an hour and one minute of your life. That's okay. <laughs> I will. Uh, I won't steal any more. But I, I really am grateful for your time. And I, yeah. and again, I apologize for um, ghosting you for so long. There, that was not my intent. It's, my intent it's before. All good. Like I said, it's it's not like there was a pandemic going on in the world, and everybody was trying to figure out their place and everything. And <laughs> right, right. Well, until next time, uh, Tracy, stay healthy, and I, yeah. I look forward to the next time So is able to make it down to Alabama and and yeah. um, see you in person, and we can go see, get some good barbecue. And and um, there we go. And be right. in person. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for all having right. me on, dude. All right, Tracy. Take care. Stay healthy. All right. All right. Thanks. See you, buddy. Bye. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y-Pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in So Percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in Pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. MangoChowClothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.